multimillionaire, serial killer, dog slayer, wastebasket peer, pathological liar, emotional vampire. That's Robert Durst. For half his life, he's roamed the country under a cloud of suspicion about his involvement in three deaths, but no court has ever been able to make a murder charge stick until now. A long, unsolved mystery was finally resolved in October 2021 when Bob Durst was found guilty for the execution-like murder of his best friend, Susan Berman, in L.A. He killed her to stop her from telling police what she knew about another murder, that of his first wife, Kathleen McCormick. Kathy went missing in New York in 1982. Her body has never been found. Then there's the murder and dismemberment of Morris Black, his elderly neighbor in Texas. Robert was somehow acquitted for that, even though he admitted he did it. If some of this story sounds familiar, you might know Bob Durst as The Jinx. He was the subject of a 2015 HBO documentary series by that name. And if that doesn't ring a bell, you might know him better as Ryan Gosling, the actor who played him in a movie loosely based on his life story. The same man, Andrew Jarecki, created both the movie and the series. Is this starting to sound like you accidentally clicked on an episode of Entertainment Tonight? I know, I hear it too. But it's a bizarre but important connection because the 20 hours of interviews captured in the HBO documentary featured heavily in his 2021 trial and ultimately his blatant lies forced a jury to find him guilty, a verdict 39 years in the making. Let's get into this. I'm Chris and this is True Crime Recaps. Before we dive into what Robert Durst did and what he's accused of doing, you need a little context about how and why he came into the public eye. This is how Hollywood helped take down the heir to one of New York's richest real estate families. Apparently, Bob Durst liked Jarecki's 2010 movie, All Good Things, so much that he offered to let the filmmaker interview him so he could tell his side of the story, about his involvement in the string of suspicious deaths surrounding him. Only a deranged, entitled narcissist would volunteer to let a film crew follow him around knowing that the rumors about him were true, right? But that's exactly what Bob did. Luckily, he's also had a lifelong habit of talking to himself, and when he forgot to turn off his microphone in the bathroom, the jinx caught this accidental confession that ultimately led to Robert's arrest. Take a listen. There it is. Your court. Disaster. What the hell did I do? Kill them all. Of course. Ever since then, he's been backpedaling, alternating between claiming that everything he said in the documentary was lies and nothing he said could be taken at face value because he was, quote, on meth the whole time. But before we jump into what he was accused of, I want you to hear what his younger brother Douglas told the New York Times. Quote, Bob is incapable of telling the truth. He is a true psychopath beyond any emotions. That's why he does things, so he can experience the emotions that other people have vicariously because he has absolutely none of his own. Take a listen to Bob facing off with the prosecutor about his lifelong habit of manipulating the truth. And by way of context, this is one of the many times his contradictory statements from the jinx were brought up. And of course, we have to thank Law & Crime for their coverage of this trial. In the past, have you stated that just because you lie a lot doesn't mean you're good at it? Maybe, I don't know. So, when you said in this clip, I've told lies all my life, can you explain how that can mean anything other than I've told lies all my life? I was following a script prepared by Andrew Jarecki. Okay, let me just be clear on this. So now it's a script you were given. It's not just hints. 
he literally had a script and you were reading it? Script is the wrong word. Hints are the right word. Hints was Andrew's word. He said, I'm going to give you hints. You have to put it in your own words. Andrew Jarecki told me what to say in telephone conversations before I gave interviews. You said, and these are your words, that you were not used to people questioning your veracity. Can you explain what you mean by that? I think it means what it says. Those words are all little words. If there's one of them you're having a problem with, I'm sure you could look it up on some app or other. Are these questions getting under your skin a little bit? I've lived my life, and I'm not used to having people question me. Douglas had a few more choice things to say about his big brother. For one, he claimed that as they grew up, Bob owned several Malamutes named Igor, all of which he allegedly killed. So every time Bob Durst said he wanted to Igor this person or that person, and he said it a lot, that was allegedly his way of threatening their life. And then there's something else Douglas said. It's not as brutal as calling his brother a serial killing dog slayer, but it is extremely bizarre. And it says a lot about the kind of guy Bob is. Get this. In the early 90s, his father was still trying to force Robert into the family business, the Durst organization. So when he had to go into work, he took his anger and frustration out in a very unusual way. He peed in the office wastebaskets. After a few months of that, he was no longer welcome. And then, of course, there was the string of murders he was suspected in. They bought him out of the family business for $65 million in 2006, then spent the rest of the time between then and now watching over their shoulders for him. At least 13 different family members have taken out restraining orders against him over the years, and Douglas has long kept a bodyguard close to protect him from his estranged brother. In fact, Bob's relationship with his family has been strained all his life. You might even call his childhood the beginning scenes of the horror movie. But to get the full effect, you really need to hear him tell you about it himself. Take a listen. I was seven years old and my mother died. She was 32. My grandfather came into my bedroom and woke me up walked me out into the hall and pointed out the hall window and said, look, Bobby, there's Mommy on the roof. Now, my grandfather did not say, good God, there's Mommy on the roof. It was just very flat. There's Mommy on the roof. Wave at Mommy. So I waved at mommy. I did not see whether she jumped or fell. Then I was brought to my bedroom and shortly thereafter, I heard my father yell, call the fire department. Shortly after that, I heard our maid Mary yell, she's off the roof. I walked outside. And there was mommy. Objection relevant. Today, the Durst family is worth about $8 billion, according to the New York Times. Now, to put that in perspective, as of April 2021, 
Forbes estimated that the Trumps, another family that famously made their fortune in real estate, are worth about $2.4 billion. So yeah, the Dursts are super rich, and traditionally, as the oldest son, Robert would be top dog in that company. But because he is who he is, and also a pathological liar to boot, the reins were handed to Douglas. But back in the late 70s, he was still the heir apparent when a mutual friend introduced him to Kathleen McCormick. So one weekend, Stuart called me up and said the two cute girls had just moved into the building where he was renting an apartment. He brought them over to my apartment and we went out to dinner. One of them was Kathy McCormick. Kathy McCormick and I got along very, very well. She was pretty and she was interesting. We could talk for a long time. We stayed up most of the night just talking to one another. She had just gotten out of high school and had spent a year working for the receptionist, as a receptionist in a dental clinic. We hit it off real well. We went out a couple more times in New York. And when I went up to Middlebury, Vermont, she came with me and stayed for three or four days. Kathy must have visited me probably once every three weeks for four or five months. Each time she would stay a little longer. Then she went and quit her job with a dentist's office and moved in with me in Vermont. That was in 1971. He was nine years older than she was, and as we've established, very rich. She was from a lower middle class family on Long Island, and he swept her off her feet. When they made Vermont their home, they ran a health food store called All Good Things, hence the title of the 2010 movie he inspired. But by the time they got married in 1973, they were back in New York City. Bob was working with his father, and the fairy tale was losing its sparkle. By most accounts, the final piece of glitter fell off their marriage in 1976 when he forced Kathy to get an abortion because he didn't want kids, according to the New York Times. That's when she enrolled in med school with plans to become a pediatrician. He used her tuition payments and allegedly physically abused her to control and keep her with him if she tried to leave. According to the Times article, three weeks before she disappeared, she was treated at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx for bruises she suffered during an argument with her husband, according to several friends and medical records later recovered by investigators. She was last seen at a friend's party near their cottage on Lake Truesdale in Westchester County, New York, on January 31, 1982. That night, Robert claimed he dropped her off at the train station so she could get back to Manhattan for hospital rounds in the morning. She was close to graduating and had reportedly been planning to visit a divorce lawyer. Neighbors say they heard the couple fighting about it at the cabin over the weekend. Bob has always been a little loosey-goosey with the facts about the last night she was seen alive. He claimed he spoke to her on the phone when she got to their Manhattan apartment, and then he went to have drinks with his neighbors. Those neighbors denied he was ever there, but Bob never let a little thing like the truth trip him up. He stuck to his story, and he had one major trick up his sleeve. His best friend, Susan Berman, he convinced her to impersonate Kathleen and call in sick to medical school, in effect, giving him an alibi. 
Then he waited five days to report her missing, but that fake phone call made his story all the more believable and threw police off for years. What really happened to Kathleen has been Robert's secret for decades, but at his 2021 trial, the truth finally started to come out. He didn't admit he killed her. It's doubtful he'd ever do that. But the prosecutor did get him to go this far. Bob's story now is he saw her at the train station but has no idea what happened to her from there. The thing was, he was dating someone else at the time. Someone he said his wife didn't like. Mia Farrow's younger sister, Prudence. Fun fact, she's the Prudence in the Beatles song, Dear Prudence. Weird, huh? If it wasn't for Susan's help, Robert might have found himself in a lot more trouble back in 82. When police searched the couple's lake cottage, they found a strange note in a garbage can. It reads like a macabre pros and cons list. Town, dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel, or question mark. In 2021, he admitted he wrote that note, but what exactly he allegedly decided to do with her body is information he seems intent on taking to his grave. But this latest trial proved one thing. He killed to keep his secrets. For 18 years after Kathy went missing, Robert wasn't charged, but when the case was reopened in 2000, the eccentric millionaire with a suspicious past turned into a killer fugitive. In November 2000, he disguised himself as a mute old woman named Dorothy Siner and fled New York to Galveston, Texas. Using handwritten notes to communicate with the landlord, he used cash to rent a $300 tiny apartment in a boarding house. Now, put a mental bookmark in that. We're coming back to that part of the story a little later. And here's one more event to add to the timeline. A month after Dorothy Siner slash Robert Durst rented that Texas apartment, he married his longtime on-and-off girlfriend, Deborah Cheridan. By his own admission, it was a marriage of convenience. He gave her control over his finances, and she got a rich husband she didn't have to live with. Put a pin in that one, too. Bob moved forward pretty fast, so we should, too. Eleven days after saying I do, he took care of one more loose end, Susan Berman, a name high up on the prosecution's list of witnesses to interview. Susan was a bigger-than-life character with a flair for the dramatic, a love of storytelling, and a past worthy of her own HBO documentary. She grew up in Las Vegas in the 50s as the cherished daughter of notorious mobster Davy Berman, Bugsy Siegel's right-hand man. Davy died of a heart attack when she was just 12, and from there, her life became something of a riches-to-rags and back-again story. She crossed paths with Robert Durst at UCLA in the 60s. He was pursuing a degree in economics. She was majoring in journalism. The two hit it off, and for the rest of her life, Susan thought of him as her best and closest friend, a man she called her wonderful Bobby. But that didn't mean she kept his secrets too close to the chest. Over the years, she hinted and or flat-out told mutual friends that Bobby had killed Kathy and she helped him cover it up. She was a mobster's daughter, after all, and helping your friends cover up a murder was kind of par for the course. But as I said, she was known to exaggerate for the sake of a good story, so no one really believed her. But by the year 2000, the same year Kathy's case was reopened in New York, Susan's fortunes were on the decline. She was about to be evicted from her home in Los Angeles' Benedict Canyon, and friends say that in the weeks leading up to her murder, she was talking about information she had that could, quote, blow the lid off things, according to New York Magazine. And as it happened, a couple of months earlier, Susan had reached out to Robert for a loan. He changed his number and hadn't given her the new one, so she wrote to him through his family's company. 
he sent her two checks in the amount of $25,000 each and told her it was a gift. Was it blackmail or just a helping hand from an old friend? It wasn't the first time Robert had used his bank account to get her out of a tight spot. But the timing with the case being reopened cast an incriminating glare on the last checks he would ever write her. Susan was the only other person in the whole world who knew Robert covered up Kathy's disappearance. What else he had confided in her about that fateful night, we don't know. She never had a chance to say, because when she told him the police had reached out to her to set up an interview, well, for Robert, it came down to him or her. And with those odds, she didn't stand a chance. On Christmas Eve in 2000, the Beverly Hills Police Department got a bizarre anonymous note in the mail. The word cadaver was written in big capital letters along with Susan's address. But the tip came a little too late. They'd already been called out to the house the day before by neighbors that saw her dogs running loose. The grisly scene they walked into was straight out of one of Susan's mobster stories. Face down in the back bedroom, she'd been shot in the back of the head execution style at point blank. The blood around her was already black. Her killer was long gone. The front door was unlocked. The back door was open. There were no signs of struggle or burglary. For years, the case went cold. The only clue was the anonymous letter. Whoever wrote it was the killer. A fact that Robert himself pointed out during the filming of the jinx, although he adamantly denied that he was either the author of the note or the killer. For years, he swore up and down that he wasn't even in California when Susan was murdered. The truth only came out after the Jinx producers confronted him with another letter he'd written to her. Let me explain. Among his many other strange Bobisms, as the prosecutor called it, was the fact that he couldn't seem to spell Beverly. As in Beverly Hills, he spelled it with an L-E-Y on the letters he wrote to Susan over the years, and he spelled it the same wrong way on the cadaver note he sent to the police. And at trial, the prosecution pointed out one more thing he'd overlooked in his effort to get away with murder. He used a stamp from Susan's desk to mail it. Here's what the prosecution believe happened. Robert flew into L.A. using an alias, rented a car under a fake name, and used his key to let himself into her house on December 22nd while she was gone. They say he had his 9mm ready, and when she walked in, he shot her in the back of the head, grabbed an envelope and stamp from her desk, mailed the infamous cadaver note to the police, and fled back to Texas. That's what the jury agreed happened. But here's Robert's story. After finally admitting that he was in L.A. at the time, he claimed he and Susan were planning on celebrating the holidays together. But just to jump back to the truth for a moment, according to the day planner police seized from her house, there wasn't one word written about a visit from her beloved Bobby. Instead, she had notes about meeting this person and calling that person. During the entire time, Bob claimed they were going to be vacationing alone together. With that in mind, let's go back to his story. He says he showed up at her house only to find her dead on the floor. He admits he wrote the note, but only because he was worried she would rot there, and what with his wife missing and all, he felt it would look bad for him to be found with her body. And with that, he fled to Texas. And that's where things got really weird. With Susan Berman dead and the prosecution's potential star witness gone, Robert took up residence in his off-the-grid room in Galveston as Dorothy Siner to wait for the prosecution's case against him in New York to blow over. Unfortunately, he underestimated his neighbor, a 71-year-old drifter named Morris Black. According to the prosecution, at some point, 
Morris caught wind of the developing case in New York and realized that the elderly mute woman living across the hall was actually the missing millionaire suspected in his wife's long-ago disappearance. From there, it's been implied that he may have pressured Robert for money to stay quiet, or he may have told others that he knew a rich man who could be convinced to give him a large sum of money. In any case, he knew enough to make him dangerous to Robert Durst. And again, it came down to a question of Morris or him. And again, Robert chose himself. On September 28, 2001, he claimed Morris came at him with a 22. They struggled with the gun and it fired. The bullet went through Morris's head. At that point, Robert claims he panicked. His position was already suspicious, being that he was alternating between aliases, one of which was a mute woman while hiding out from the prosecution's office in New York, and he assumed no one would believe him if he reported an accidental self-defense shooting. So instead, he claimed he went to a hardware store for a saw and an axe, drank a fifth of Jack Daniels, and proceeded to spend the next two days chopping up the man's body, which he then threw into the bay. Less than a week later, most of the remains, with the exception of the poor man's head, had been discovered. The clues had been put together, and Robert was arrested for Morris's murder. But just because he was arrested didn't mean he was caught. His wife paid his quarter of a million dollar bail, and he skipped town. He was a free man for almost eight weeks. Then a cashier in a grocery store in Pennsylvania spotted him shoplifting band-aids and a chicken sandwich, and he was arrested. Again. Bizarrely, he had $37,000 in cash in his car and almost five hundred in his pockets. So now that he was back in custody and back in Texas, the prosecution thought for sure they had a slam dunk case when it got to trial in 2003. Unfortunately, they had two things going against them. First, Robert had a lot of money, and he used more than a million of it to buy himself a first-rate defense team. Second, and here's the kicker, because Morris's head was never found, the prosecution couldn't prove without a shadow of a doubt that Robert's story about a self-defense shooting was a lie. So even though he admitted to the horrific murder and dismemberment, he was acquitted. Although he did do a little time for destroying evidence and he was paroled in 2005. Miraculously, unbelievably, with three suspicious deaths in his rear view, Robert Durst was free and clear. Maybe he thought he was untouchable. Maybe he wanted the attention, or maybe he just wanted to find out how far he could push it, because not too many years after that is when he saw the fictionalized account of his life story as played by Ryan Gosling, and despite his second wife's warnings, he pitched a real-life version to Andrew Jarecki, promising unfiltered access and his side of the story in the jinx. So who is Robert's second wife, Deborah Sheridan? She's a successful New York real estate broker who had been dating Robert on and off since 1988. According to the New York Post, he proposed with a $77,000 engagement ring, and they made it official in a 15-minute ceremony officiated by a rabbi Deborah had picked out of the phone book. The quickie wedding was held in a private conference room in an office building in Times Square and attended by only one witness. There were no pictures and no smiles, according to what the rabbi told the Daily News later. It was the second marriage for both of them. He had filed for a divorce from Kathy McCormick in 1990, citing abandonment. Deborah and Robert have no kids together. Instead, he gave her something she might have wanted more, power of attorney over his finances. 
At his trials over the years, it's been speculated that he needed an outside person to get him money when he needed it so he could stay under the radar. And as his wife, she can't be compelled to testify against him just in case she knows anything worth saying. Sources cited in the New York Post called her a shark, and by way of example, the article points to a recorded jailhouse phone call with her husband after he was rearrested for Morris Black's murder. In the call, the article says she can be heard telling him that if he tried to claim insanity, his family would get his money. As you know, he went with self-defense and won. She was also vehemently against him appearing in the Jinx, and when the documentary series started airing on HBO in early 2015, she distanced herself from him fast, although it's believed that they are still legally married to this day, not that the couple has ever spent too much time living together. And after the evidence and shocking interviews were revealed on the show, it was clear that Robert's days as a free man were numbered. In March of 2015, the night before the final shocking episode of The Jinx aired, Robert was arrested in New Orleans for Susan's murder. He was staying in a Marriott hotel under a fake name. When he was captured, he had a loaded 38 revolver, his passport and birth certificate, a fake ID, a creepy flesh-colored latex mask, and more than $40,000 in cash on him. Later, it was discovered that he had stockpiled $400,000 more in cash and was planning to flee to Cuba. His trial originally started in 2020, but had to be postponed for more than a year because of the COVID pandemic. When Robert appeared in the courtroom in 2021, he looked like a very different man than he had on the jinx. The years and the lies caught up to him on October 14th, 2021, when he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And then, a few days later, he was officially charged with Kathleen McCormick's murder for the first time in almost 40 years. And almost simultaneously, it was announced that he tested positive for COVID-19 to add to his many other ailments. So, it remains to be seen whether or not he'll live to see the inside of a courtroom to answer for his role in Kathleen's disappearance. But at long last, at least some form of justice has been served up to the jinx. And that's your true crime recap. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, remember to subscribe so you never miss a story. Amy and I are here every week with something new to share, and it would mean so much to us if you took a minute to leave the show a five-star review. It really helps us spread the word. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. Until next time, take care.